belly buttoned that up. I'm very relaxed, as you can tell. I've been stretching. Brett Turley, mate, welcome to the ISS podcast. Thanks for coming on. Um, mate, you've had a an interesting career, uh, starting with what in special operations and then and then your almost philanthropic life uh, and then moving into the fitness and wellness industry. Mate, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, boys. I wouldn't say it's uh philanthropic, but it's uh it's been interesting as well though, that's for sure. I've meandered around the place. Uh, and your, me- your meandering kind of started. Uh, let's take it back so we can get a bit of a backstory. Special operations. You're a, uh, a combat engineer in uh, SOA. Yeah, correct. Uh, and you did a couple of deployments. You had a pretty good job. You were li- so f- for few, for the for the listeners that aren't uh, Dargans or Army centric. Uh, you can you take them through your sort of your service and and some of your deployments, mate. Yeah, so I was an explosive detection dog, dog handler. Started off in Darwin, though. Yeah, up at one CR in, uh, I think, joined shit 2004. Fuck, that makes me sound old. Um, started there, but then finished up the last few years working out of SOA down here in Sydney. So working with the boys from 2 Commando and, and all that sort of jazz. So through the process, though, ended up doing two tours of Afghanistan. One was MRTF1 in 2008-2009. And then it's a PG-17 in uh, 2012. So that's that's the military career summed up pretty pretty succinctly. Basically just got to cruise around the world with a dog and look for things that go bang. Mate, what is it like when you find something that goes bang? What What is it you're, you're – so I guess when you look at people uh, in these particular jobs and they go um, – you sort of get the training and then you get out on the ground and you're like, Oh, that's a real bomb. Uh, what is going through your fucking mind, mate? Well, I've found IEDs a couple of ways. Some are not advisable, i.e. driving over the bloody things. Uh, and then I've found them with the dog as well. So, um, And we've, I've also missed one. I've missed one. In, um, two, including the one I drove over but uh, in, in a Bushmaster, but... It's when if we're looking talking in terms of searching a dog when you when you're downrange and your dog parks its ass so when it indicates on the explosive you kind of have this oh shit moment and everything just stops for a bit and then hopefully if your dog hasn't sat on anything you just recall it come back but you know what the training system's like in the military it's pretty top notch it gets you as, as ready as you can possibly be for those types of things because it's like I always explain it's like playing a game of footy uh, sorry training for a game of footy every day but never getting to play so when you get to actually get a run on Guernsey you're pretty well prepared but you're never quite prepared for that first IED uh, and particularly when they go bang underneath you're never prepared for that kind of shit how big was the one that you you missed uh, in the bushy uh, the, the one we hit it the one we hit in the bushy was 30 kilos of homemade explosive right underneath the vehicle. I was functioned by one of the little anti-personnel mines uh, that they had everywhere, the little Russian PMNs, and um, that thing went up with a great amount of dust and force. The, um, the front end of the bushy was like 
in the air for I felt felt like about sixty seconds, but it was probably only a few. But um, dust everywhere. Dog hit the roof of the Bushmaster. Buddy, I was holding onto the Jesus bars, just trying to buddy work out what was going on. It was um, it was an experience, that's for sure. Was that just you boys out the front of the convoy? At, like standard, put the engineers out front, uh, and they can get blown up. Yeah, find them. Sorry, and then uh, <laughs> you know, did you have all the rhino? Did because I remember later on in the trips they put a whole bunch of sweets on the front of the bushes to help you out finding them. But uh, no, yeah, twenty twelve was that happening, or were they just? No, nah, that was two thousand and eight or well, two thousand nine was the was the first the ID that I was in. Um, we didn't have any of that stuff, but. We were up building one of the patrol bases just out, out back from Chora, so just down from Chora, and it was a pretty unfriendly part of the world at that stage because we hadn't done a lot of ops up there. Um, uh, and we were setting up that patrol base, so it sort of dragged dragged Terry out to sort of have a bit of a dig at us, and there have been a couple of strikes along the route. We've been going from uh, one of the patrol bases to get stores and bring it back to build it. So... Um, we we were we were doing search operations all that morning, um, and it was weird because I wore my seatbelt for the first time ever. But that day, which is strange, but um, we were doing searching, and then it's kind of like that sixth sense moment where you're um, where I looked out. I was the first seat behind the driver, and <laughs> you, I looked out the looked out the window, and just the ground didn't look like we were about to go into a bit of a defile. And I just said, "Ooh, that doesn't look good," and I lifted my legs up off the floor. And then we just went boom up. So none of the boys were searching. We didn't miss it technically. We hit it. <laughs> we cleared the route, I guess, if you want to sort of call it a partial success. But um, yeah, it was it was definitely a, an interesting event that probably shaped a lot of a lot of the way we conducted business from there on. After I think we were a little bit complacent or probably under a rush to get places, and it kicked us up the ass. That's for sure. Um. Because, I mean, they were these are fairly rudimentary devices, right? Like, was there stuff that you found and were like, this is a little, this is a little complex or like we're talking like big daisy chained, you're in the middle of an absolute shit fight? Well, the, the first trip in 2008, 2009, we had a pretty quiet trip. Like, I think uh, we got brassed up. I'm, in my team, like, we got blown up, obviously. I found a couple of IEDs. The boys found a couple I missed one where one of the boys was blown up in the back of a bushy, one of the infantry fellows. Um, but that's an intro. We'll, we'll, we can touch on that if you want. But the they were rudimentary, but that was so clever with the way they did it, right? Like you're looking essentially, if you're talking about the mine detectors for the my team, the, the engineers that had, you're looking for like a pinprick of metal across like you might be searching for 5, 10 Ks when we're doing a lot of route searching and stuff as well. So you're looking for like the old proverbial needle in a haystack. So as rudimentary as they were, they they were really efficient and they worked really well. And obviously the dog had to have a scent to find. If there was no scent coming out of the ground, the dog wasn't going to find it. Um, so they were simple but, but super effective, I guess. I wouldn't want to be... Uh... An engineer. So, I mean, we, you briefly touched on uh, what, what is it like in the because we had a couple of secos when we went over, and and they obviously when they sort of picked a route that resulted in you know one of the boys getting brassed up or or blown up, they sort of they took it on board as a personal sort of attack. 
was there stuff that you missed that resulted in boys getting hurt? And, and is that something that you sort of dealt with or had to deal with? Or Yeah, one, one. Um, I made the promise after it happened that I'd never miss another thing. And fortunately, my second trip, which was with Two Commando, which is way busier than the first, way, way, way busier. And we're talking about complex IED laying. That's with the era when they were actually lacing whole buildings with IEDs. Um, so they'd have multiple multiple trigger points and they'd be uh, putting like uh, artillery shells in the walls and stuff like that. Um, like that, that was a way more complex threat environment, but we were lucky to evade most of those. Um, but yeah, we were we were in oh, it was probably early 2009 and we were it was winter, so obviously shitty time of year to be cruising out and about the place, but um we were on this particular side of the, the river and um, we'd asked for overwatch on this particular choke point. There was one entry over to the over the other side of the river, one only. And we asked for um overwatch overnight to keep an eye on this one choke point. Because it was obvious as shit. If you're gonna lay anything, you're gonna lay it there. Um, and we and we got told no. Um, and that's not disparaging anyone, I guess. It's probably easy to talk shit in hindsight, but we got top no because operation we needed all of our as labs and everything up the road. So we went off, we parked up for the night, and then we were coming back through this choke point. And um we got out to search this um this this choke point, and it was that eerie, like early morning, dead quiet type scenario and we're like something's not right here um and i sent the dog down into the in the defile and he was sniffing and humming around but the way the scent picture works with an ied right it needs time for the actual explosive scent to come through the soil and then before that can occur all you're dealing with is disturbed earth and if your dog uh doesn't indicate because it doesn't smell explosive it doesn't mean he's wrong he just hasn't smelt what he needs to smell to make him sit right, and I had my dog humming along the um the 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 choke point. I think I said, "Oh, Mike, I'm not I'm not a hundred percent because he hasn't indicated, but there's disturbed earth there, and like if anywhere, it's going to be here." And the second I agree with me, Joe, he was he was like, "Yeah, but we can't walk around all day looking for this thing." So we got the boys to search with their mine detectors down into the into the defile. And we would have missed stepping on this thing by like, I, I look back on it, we were like an inch away from stepping on this IED, right? And then the car drove down to pick us up once we searched this shit out of it. The boys missed it with my detectors too. It's not their fault. You're literally looking for that like uh, pinky-sized bit of metal for the detonator. And then um, we drove, we got in the car, which we would have been standing literally right over the top of it the way it was laid. And we got in the car and drove off to the next checkpoint. And then the fifth car through, which was Craig's car, the sergeant um, for, from the grunt platoon we were with, um, they went through a little bit quick and the arse end of the bushy, like the actual V-shaped hull, hit the hit the um, BMN, the actual mine, the anti-personnel mine. So they didn't lay it in the right wheel tracks. But because they went through a little bit quick, the arse end bottomed out and then because it hit the actual vehicle itself, it pushed all the, the water in the in the hull up through the back end and it, and it busted his legs up. Uh, and he was pretty banged up. He was banged up for a lot of years. He's back riding his bike and stuff now. But that particular incident and then on top getting blown up as well, I think that just sent me into that like hypervigilance mode of promising myself I'd never miss anything again. 
Uh, and fortunately enough, I didn't. Or, or like where, like even if we, if there was IEDs, we managed to maneuver around them and not hit them. But it weighed on me for a lot of years. I didn't think it did because I kind of came at peace with what my actions were. And it is one of those unfortunate things. But I think it caught up with me if, like years down the track, thinking about how it affected Craig's life and and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it, it's 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 something I've dealt with, but now I'm pretty at peace with it because I probably couldn't have done any better on the day. Um, but it's it's a if you go looking for a fight, you're bound to get punched in the nose at some point, right? Yeah, mate. Does it? I mean, is this something? I mean, you were a young guy over there. You would have been how old? Fuck, uh, 22, I believe. 22. Yeah, 22 or 23. Nothing, yeah, nothing man, 20, older than that, man. You're 22 years old. I think most of the young Thundercats, if you were back in Australia and you're 22 years old, like, man, I, I was I was still trying to figure out what my dick did, I think, properly. Do you know what I mean? Like, And then getting over there and being put <laughs> in that position where, I mean, that's a lot of stress, um, having those actions resulting in, in injuries like that what, what did you see or how did you feel it perpetrate through your psyche like what were the the things looking back on it you're like oh maybe that was because i i think a lot of people that have gone through some stuff they don't realize until post and they're like ah that actually makes sense yeah i i don't think it really processed it until a lot of years after where a whole heap of personal events happened sequentially in a really short period of time of about 18 months and i hit just rock bottom and burnout i sort of unpacked it all but like the manifestation on the ground right like so particularly after we got blown up um we got flown to kandahar for the dog to get looked at by the vet he had a bit of internal bleeding and stuff but he was okay and then when i got back on on the tools Every single vehicle job I went on from that point on in the vehicle, I felt the most unsafe in any part of the operation, right? When I was out on the ground, I felt in control um, because, yeah, I missed that one IED with Craig, but at least you could be out and affecting the, the outcome. And when we were in the vehicle, it was just so many moving parts uh, that you couldn't control. So like I just held on to that for like I was just a, a wreck. But luckily on my second trip, we did a lot of fly in, fly out work. We didn't do a lot of vehicle jobs. Um, but even like 2012, like we did a couple of vehicle jobs and I was still like an anxious wreck in the back of the car, like just thinking about it. Like we're driving at night too, doing a lot of night ops. And I'd just be sitting in the car wide awake, just waiting for stuff. Like it, it sort of just, it, it, it messed with me a fair bit. I never really let up on it because we get out of the car and be able to get to work. But that's how it sort of manifested initially. Uh, and then that obviously the guilt processing, like I just made sure I leveled up my skills for that second trip. Um, I made sure I was the best operator I possibly could be on the ground. And then that resulted in my, my new dog having some really good finds, got the trust with the two commando boys. Um, and then going through a few big jobs with them, like it, it sort of just it, it it looked after itself because I let my I let my operate operation skills sort of do the talking and put that in the back of my mind and not let it affect me too much. Was there any um, fines while you're over there? So talking like when you work with some of the two commando boys uh, and you you found something, you were like, oh, 
that could have been catastrophic had you not have found it. I mean, catastrophic is as much as missing a bomb, but you know, that, that had that real life, real world effect where you're going, this could have been an absolute mass cas, horrific. No, I was, because we were doing a lot of like direct target, right? So there'd be no pre-warning that we'd be coming in. We are doing a lot of stuff with the DEA, uh, counter-drug work. So we'd find out if they were processing a bunch of opium or morphine or whatever it was, and then we'd rip in on target at like four in the morning. So they'd never have a chance to lay any any IDs for the, the routes in and out, which is awesome because you just, you couldn't be targeted. There was a couple of jobs where we were in Kajaki where, the IED threat was like huge. I always remember, like I was walking down this dark alley, had my night vision on, and uh, I was with I was with the boys, and they were um, with my regular crew because I sort of just attached myself to the uh, regular bunch of fellas, a bunch of shooters, and um, they're like, "Brett, you go first down this alleyway." And the shoot threat was high, and the IED threat was high, but the IED threat was even higher, right? So they're like, Brett, you got to go first. I'm like, ah. Fuck right, eh? Send my dog away and I'm walking along and I turn around and here they are with their fingers in their ears taking the piss, like it's like just having a joke going, oh I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> it was it was pretty funny. We had a few jokes on that. So we steered all around a lot of it, but there were jobs where one of the boys, Trent, functioned one of those houseborn IEDs. So where the house was completely wide but didn't function properly. So he he got pretty hurt from it. Um, but not everyone got injured by it. So that was a pretty good outcome. Luckily, it didn't function correctly. Uh, my mate, Scotty Smith, who died in back end of 2012 off the trip behind us, uh, he was he was in one of those houseborns, I believe, that, that killed him, but he saved his whole team before he got he got crumped. Um, so we dodged all of that. Um, but like you could hear on the ICOM chatter, like when we go into a building and search it and it was desolate, like it was like, it was one of the places where they were processing the drugs. You'd hear them on the icon going, yeah, they're in the house with the bomb now. And we were just lucky we never stood in anything, I reckon. Like I, with the way they were laying them and how long they were building these buildings with the bombs in the walls, they were completely sealed off. Um, they'd worked out how the dog actually detects the explosives and that sort of jazz as well. They knew how to beat a mine detector by laying pretty much all plastic. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if we just got really, really lucky. Yeah, I think um, that used to that happened quite a bit. You, you'd hear the luck of the Australians, like there was some stuff going on, and noting the amount of uh, near misses. I can't. I've never heard of a houseborn IED, but I can't believe that. Mate. You know, the yeah. whole house was wide up to blow up. Yeah, well, that's what they sort of reacted to when we started ripping in on target because they'd set us up with these um, with the information too. I'm positive all the informants that we were getting get, get info from were getting fed some of this info from the Taliban as well where they were like, yeah, tell them we're doing this here and they'd make it look exactly like they were or they'd do it a few days before we'd even be able to get there and they'd have everything prepped for us. I would not be surprised. Um, the double... Double-sided deals that went on in that place were, were crazy. Um, but, like, that trip itself, every, like, second job we were getting brassed up, a couple of near near chopper crashes. I think we, we had a brownout coming in on target in one of those um, CH-53s, the big yank choppers. And I'm sitting there, and I was first meant to get first out the door, and that's not what was meant to happen with the dog. 
Um, but I was first there and then all of a sudden I was over the other side of the chopper on top of this guy named Dirk from the DEA, like riding him into the ground. Like we just completely did a 90-degree turn. The chopper pilot saved it. I don't know how he did it. But um, there was whole heaps of those things, ripping in on target with RPGs flinging past you when we were down in Kajaki and, and Helmand province. Uh, and it's like those v, V-22s, the Ospreys, worst fucking airframe in the world to go direct on target. Worst. They, they're awesome for getting home and to a from because they're quick. But then when they have to do their little rotor thing and come down nice and slow, you just sit there with rockets going past and trace and you're just looking at it going, this is fucking not ideal. But it was all part of it. It was all part of the fun and the enjoyment and I've got some pretty good stories out of it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. What? So this is a big one as well. Um, a lot of people are fans of do- your dogs. What was the relationship like with your with the dogs you had over there. Now I know it's pretty tight, but um, just to explore people, um, it's some pretty sick relationships you form with your dogs, eh? Yeah, it's like it's the best job in the world, man. You get to like kick it around a different country, different parts of the world with a dog. My first dog, because we were doing a lot of vehicle operations, we slept in the same swag together. Though he never got up and did picket with me, the prick. Um, he always just used to steal my sleeping bag and just go for a snooze. But, like, you just, like, my second boy would be at the uh, Camp Russell. In, in Camp Russell, we'd finish up for a job, right? You'd be going to bed, and then all of a sudden I'd hear this boom, boom, boom. Hey, Turles, your dog's out here. I'm like, what do you fucking mean? I put him in his kennel. And then I'd open the door, and here he is wagging his tail, going, I just chewed through the fence to come and see you. <laughs> so you just, you just get these amazing bonds with the dogs. They both retired. My first boy lived to, like, the age of 17, passed away a couple of years ago. And then Bullseye, my second guy, um, he's he's in Townsville as the um, Royal Australian Engineers mascot up there at the moment. So they get pretty good lives, man. But, geez, they, they just make life a lot better because they weren't the fuzzy chainsaws that the, the two commando boys and the SAS had. You could actually play with them, pat them like – and they, were, they, were just, they weren't they – weren't, you weren't always worried if they were going to chew your face off. So um, that's why the boys loved them, I guess. Mate, we um, we used to we did a couple of operations uh where we had the dogs attached and and we ended up adopting a couple of a couple of local dogs. Um, we had Trackpad and we had uh, God, I can't remember what the other mongrel these mongrel dogs and we kept them and um, Chopper the Afghan Wonder Dog. We got them washed. Vets were sending over stuff to get them. Fucking yeah, Chopper right? <laughs> <laughs> were you? Could you? Were you MRTF two? No, I'm RTF one, man. So we took over Chopper from yeah, uh, yeah what yeah. was it? Seven Aria, Seven Aria, yeah, at, yeah. at uh, Atik, and the, yep. and they're like, you look look after this dog because, and and the morale that that dog, he would just come on patrol, follow us. It was just something that people could take their mind off. I thought it was absolutely phenomenal, mate. And we we kept Chopper. Chopper ended up having to go. Um, I think one of the Kandaks ripped out and they end up going to one of the other provinces and they, like three Mack trucks ended up getting fucking daisy chained full of a whole Kandak where the Afghan and Chopper went with them, I think. Um, and we adopted one, but the rank didn't, never managed to pick up the the same vibe or 
I don't know, the effect that a dog had on a patrol or a, or a group of guys. Um, I remember one of it, we had an ROC ordered one of our mongrel dogs that we adopted to get shot, like take him out and shoot him. And that probably had more of an effect on the team than any contacts or any near misses. They're like, you fucking shot our dog, you can't. You know what I mean? Like, so, <laughs> oh, that was a rant, mate. I don't know, but. Uh, no, it's, it's yeah, I can understand. It's Did a you, man's I mean, best friend test, mate. It's it's a man's best friend test, right? You put your partner, guy, girl. I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not judging anyone for those their selection in life. But you put your partner and your dog in the boot of a car in the hot sun for an hour. You open it up. There's only one that's happy to see you. <laughs> don't don't absolutely, quite, don't, mate. No one do that. Actually, that'd probably be bad drills. So you got to keep when they retire. You get to keep them and um, obviously adopt them. Do you? Yeah, yeah. So I, I had a chance to adopt my second fellow. I just didn't have the room for him. So one of the boys, Lats, took him uh, and still has him and loves him to death. So he's got a pretty bloody good life. And we always used to try and rehome the, especially the experienced dogs that had done a few trips and, and paid their dues with one of the handlers. And then if not, you'd be able to find one of the boys in the regiments that would take him quick smart, like they'd never really go without. But who wouldn't want a dog that's fully trained, listens to commands and is your best friend, loves chasing a tennis ball, like you get this pre-made dog that's just a weapon at life. So it's um, it's a pretty easy sell to give him another home, that's for sure. And on a, as a byproduct, if there's any ever IEDs in downtown Sydney, they'll find them. Yeah, well, that's... um. What was it? We had one of the boys actually take a take an old EDD home and the story went that he was out walking him in a park somewhere and the dog indicated and it turns out there was like this little cached pistol or something sticking around. I don't know how true it was. I can't even remember who said it, but um, even the boys that had, had weapons at home like in their safes and, and whatnot, if they, were, if they loved having a shoot on the weekend, you'd often find the dog's sitting there just staring and indicating at the safe or wherever they had the rounds. And, yeah, they never lose it. Like you could take them out of the army, but you'll never take the army out of a dog, that's for sure. Mate, so what happened? Um, what was the big move out of army? And, and what was the reason that you decided to sort of transition out? Was it part of service or? I think there's a, there was a mix of things, right? Like, um 2012 was a busy trip. Anyone who's watched the news recently and knows what sort of how 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 hard it was for the crews operating there, I was pretty burnt out. Um, to be honest, uh, there were some. I think it, I was also maturing as an individual. I was 25 at that stage. I joined the army at 17, so I didn't know anything different. But I'd started to get a bit a bit wiser about the world, and I'd started to grow out of the the political or cultural style of the, what the army was delivering for me. Um, that's not a that's not a slide. I think I just started out growing and wanted to spread my wings a little bit. Um, but I'd also, uh, the two days after I got back in country from my second trip, went in to see the SSM and he's like, you're going back in six months. for well, I think it would have been SOTG 19 or whatever it was. So it was going to be a quick turn and burn. But by then, uh, I'd met my ex-wife at that stage. I wanted to sort of look at my other horizons, pretty burnt out. So I decided to exit, uh, chuck, my, chuck my leave in and, and pop smoke there. So I think it was just a, a mix of a lot of things. But if we drew it down to one, 
I probably didn't have the heart in me to go back for another trip. I think I'd, I'd spent enough time in that country living on the edge and I thought my heart's not in anymore and that's where the boys get hurt or killed if I, if I miss something. I'd run pretty good luck the whole time I'd been there, the 14 months, so I thought, thought I'd pull up stumps while I was ahead. So what about what about sorry boys? I'm just going to jump in. I haven't um, been talking much. My computer's about to explode as usual, but it seems like it's good now. So what about now though? You've been out for a bit. Do you ever look at it, especially watching stuff on the news a couple of weeks ago? Do you ever look at it and go, "Ooh, I'd, I'd go back again"? I'd 100% go back again. Like I, I would. I'd love to. It's like the whole like it's one of the, it's the best job I ever had. Um, it won't be the only only best job I ever have. Like I've got a pretty good mission now, but. I'd go back if the boys, if we reassembled the band and got the band back together, I'd, I'd go back um, because it was, a, it was a job. Life was simple, man. Like you didn't have social media. You had a mission. You had a purpose. You had the boys, like especially over in SOTG too, the food was bloody good. <laughs> you got looked after and, and you, were, you, you were achieving the mission, like going out, which I think we took something ridiculous, like $200 million worth of street value drugs off the market in our five and a half months there. So it fills you with a purpose and that probably leads to why a lot of people struggle when they exit. I've just come to peace with it where uh, instead of framing it as an excuse or a limiting belief for my life, I, do, I, do, I call it an experience which guides my my growth and sort of and, and the way I conduct myself. So I'm very thankful for it. I would go back, but I'm also pretty bloody content with the mission I'm on now. And what about the boys that you're over there with or the boys that you're in with? Do you, you catch up with them a bit now still? Yeah, I've, I've stayed in contact with like a core group of, of the boys. Like I've never really been one to mix across a huge amount of, amount of social circles. Being a doggy, everyone knew you, knew you by your dog's name and not you, but I sort, of, I sort of floated around. But I've stayed in contact with a few of the boys that I went through particular parts of training with. But really like it's – um you sort of drift apart from the ones that you didn't have a close connection with, but there's just that small nucleus, which they've also been super, super helpful for me getting through some tough times. Like they've, they've been the, the support network I've needed. So I've kept those boys in the pocket and they're always, always good to catch up with and reminisce about times of old. Yeah. I mean, that's why I ask Cause I mean, I, I don't know anyone that, that got out and didn't think about getting back in and, I also don't know anyone who got out, then got back in, and then recommends it to anyone else. Because it's like you get out and get back in. It's not the job that you miss; it's the boys that you're doing it with, and and they're not there anymore. And you get back in, you're just a sad old panda hanging around the cages. But yeah, it's it's good to know it's the same across across different um different units. Yeah, I, I, I think always it's, still it's a purpose driven thing, isn't it? It's a purpose thing. Like yeah, you, you miss the purpose yeah, and absolutely. the mateship, um, but you think it's the job. But it's also a super stable career if you look at mm. it. Like it's a government paycheck every fortnight you can bank on. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the boys, particularly the last couple of years, have really pondered it seriously or done it. But you're right, everyone I've seen that's gone back in as a retread absolutely hates it. Yeah, mate, I um, it is. And, and everyone asks you, it's like, what, what was the stress levels like when you're overseas with the military? I'm like, you don't, you've got one thing to worry about and that is don't blow up. That you don't have to worry about bills. You don't have to worry. Well, I was going to say you don't have to worry about the missus, but a lot of the boys still do, um, or your or your partner, whatever it might be. But yeah, there is there is nothing else going on in your brain other than 
the job in front of you. It's 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 almost like the yogi saying, like just to be present. That is the one time in my life I know I was ultimately present in the Middle East. Yeah. Didn't care about the past, didn't care about the future other than five minutes in front of me. Yeah, it definitely makes life simple. And I talk to it actually with my clients and stuff, like simple lives like that. And that's why I'm very big on getting people to cut shit that they don't need out of their lives. When you come back into the world of like getting slammed with social media ads, different priorities, you're back in with your family, you're got to do 400 things in your day, like that's where that cognitive fatigue and, and the and the sort of struggling starts because it's not simple anymore. You've got multiple things to consider, other people in your life that you need to worry about. And that's I think that's part of the struggle with most people. They, they just get flogged to a point where they're just tired and mentally fatigued that they're not making the best decisions or um, or it's a contrast so much that they wish they could go back to that simple life, but it's just simply not the case anymore. Mate, simple life's a good life, which is the perfect segue. What's your book called? Oh, it's a book that I wrote in 2014. It's called The Minimalism Effect. I honestly don't recommend anyone get it. It's free on Kindle now. I wrote it. <laughs> it holds a four-star four star rating and it's had 15,000 copies sold. Um, but I challenged Jesus. myself. Oh, that's all right. Yeah, I challenged myself in 2014 to write something and publish it within six weeks. Um, because I was really struggling with self-doubt and putting my own shit out there and wondering what people would think. It was the old imposter syndrome thing, right? And I was like, fuck it, I'm just going to write this book, get it out in the world and see what happens. Um, and then it actually went all right. It hit number one bestseller on Amazon uh, once or maybe even twice. I can't remember exactly, but it's I've gotten rid of 15,000 copies of it and all the positive feedback was awesome. And you always get those negative nellies that go, ah, oh, your book's shit, your book's that. And it's not my best work. I guarantee it. Like, um, I guarantee you. I actually wouldn't recommend anyone get it. Wait till I rewrite, rewrite it and relaunch it this year. Um, but it's all about, it was a process of actually starting to not give a fuck about the thoughts and opinions of others. And it actually did the world of good for me by getting it out there. Mm, no, nah, mate, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that especially around military crowds in, in the veteran community, a lot of the guys and girls that, that have ideas and want to have a crack, we're so, uh, as, well, especially in the OR kind of community, you're so used to being told you're doing something shit that even if you've got what you know is a brilliant idea, a lot of people are just too scared to have a crack because they've got this imposter syndrome and they, they don't want to back themselves on Civvy Street um, having a crack. And um, Adam Boyd, one of the one of the blokes, he's an engineer as well. Actually, he's doing um, a fair bit of project management stuff with us. He's big. One of his main mottos is is in the pursuit of perfect. Don't forget good, and that's something I think everyone can can take away from. Like, have a crack. You're gonna get haters. Like, it's 2021. If you put something out there and there's no haters, you might be living in a, a, an echo chamber. But have a crack. It might only be good, but then you can improve on it. And like you're doing, make version two. Yeah. Well, my feedback metrics are when I validate or take someone's feedback on board is like particularly with writing and getting your thoughts and opinions out there. A, do you write? B, have you written a book and actually given it to the world to critique? And then C, are you someone I actually respect? And if you can answer like one, two or three of those questions, oh, listen, I'll take it on board. Absolutely. Because I love constructive criticism i think that's what the military sets you up well with is receiving criticism and, and improving from it 
But like, if you if you're in one of those, if you if you can't answer yes to one of those questions, I do not give a fuck about what you think. Um, and learning <laughs> how to just sort of not care about that sort of stuff is important, particularly like that. I was thinking you've usually got a crusty sergeant or woe that didn't do anything with themselves that hates a lot just used to punching durries and drinking cans of coke for brekkie that can sometimes be a negative Nelly and then you get the other guys on the other side that are the good operators they go yeah go for it have a crack but you're gonna get it like social media is an amplifier for idiots mate like if um if you if you want to have an opinion in a sook about something you've got a perfect platform to just get a bit sandy with it and go go for gold yeah, I, this is what's perplexing to me um, is it's Australians are all good blokes and a fair go and fair dinkum. And then um, as soon as someone's like, oh, no, he's a polish, he's a politician, like, well, fuck him. And they're just, or, oh, they're, he's a published author now. No, he's a human being still. You don't have to be a piece of shit. Keep your opinion to yourself. Like, no, I've got to get it off my chest. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it's that tall poppy yeah. syndrome, mate. I think we we're bad for it in Australia. You talk to American counterparts, and they're like, "That's awesome, man!" Like they're pretty encouraging. Um, I don't know where we get it from, to be honest. Like, look, it's it's twenty twenty one. If you want to go and make something yourself, or have a red hot crack at something, whether it's a business or bringing something into the world that can benefit others, like it's perfect. The world is perfect for you to be able to do that now. Um, you can reach the audience you want to reach. You can find the crowd that loves what you do. Um, and honestly, if you spend your time, if you've got the time to be the one that comments on social media, like bagging people out, it's just coming from a deep sense of insecurity of yourself and where you're at, to be honest. Uh, look, at, look at what COVID's done, I guess, like everyone getting up in arms about whether or not they're getting vaxxed or whatever. That's only because you feel like you are having your rights taken away as a human being um, and you're feeling unsafe and uncertain. If people were just honest about it, it'd probably make for a, a way tamer conversation, but probably hence why I don't kill it on social media because I'm pretty bloody boring with it. Like worry about your own wheelhouse before you go telling other people how to deal with their own, right? Yeah, mate, that, that is the problem that... that um Social media has given a voice to people who definitely shouldn't have a voice at the moment. And, and the big problem, like human psychology, is we all want to be on an even playing field. And when we're on level with a peer and then they do something exceptional, write a book, for example, you've got two options. You can lift your own game to come up to them or you can try and cut their legs out and shit all over them and try and bring them back down to you. And unfortunately, it's far easier to go on social media and try and shit on people than it is to actually put in the effort to go and write your own book. So the majority of the population are taking option A and or sorry, option B and trying to cut everyone else down. Yeah, it's um it's the principle of effort in, isn't it? It's like health, fitness, your mindset, getting out of a rut, whatever it is, building a business. You boy, you boys have known you're dealing with it every day. Um, it's it just gets to the point where you've either got to want it enough to um to give it a crack or you're just not invested in it or it's just not the right goal or purpose for you. Which is okay too. You don't have to have like really huge ambitious goals, but then you got to be careful. Like giving shit to someone that's given it a red hot crack, you don't know what sort of how much they're struggling. Like burnout in the PT industry, for instance, is rife. Like you get people that just bag other people out about how shit they are or why they're doing something wrong. You don't know what sort of mental state someone else is in. It's probably just better to shut your mouth and go about your business. 
A, you give you back your time. Um, and you've only got a certain amount of fucks to dish out, right? You, you, if, you've, if you've only got a certain amount, you probably just don't want to be given it to people that are never going to impact your life or help you on your own cause either. Yeah, we've got um, yeah. Jess, um, chick that manages um, sort of our community outward focus stuff. She's a really nice chick. She's not a veteran. She's a she's as far left and different, like chalk and cheese, and she, sweetest girl. And she said this thing the other day. Like we woke up, we had some comments on Facebook going pretty pretty negative, and she's just like, to look at that sort of toxic environment that affects someone who's not even in the veteran space. So this is talking about the veteran community and then people wanting to come forward and help. So Jess coming and helping Swiss 8. And then the the amount of abuse that she copped in six from six people, she's like, I've, how, how I, yeah, it perplexes me, mate. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm actually, I'm actually a big fan. I know cancel culture is a thing, but I'm actually a big fan of telling people to fuck off. Like, I've had people sort of question or like bring up a val- like a, an argument towards me about things, but it's just like out of emotion. I'm like, all right, we'll present what you think is the right way or whatever, and they don't have any substance. And I'm, I'm pretty quick to just tell people to fuck off, honestly. Um, like if you've got genuine evidence or uh, you've got a theory that's pretty valid or you want to present it as a counter-argument, absolutely bring it along let's talk about it but also if we get to a point where we can't agree i am quite happy to disagree with you and move on with my life but not tear you down to make myself leave the better person or feeling like the better person or bigger person i'm like well that's your opinion sweet i'm gonna i'm gonna go do me now i'll see you later um i think i think that's what we've lost to in this day and age is the um the ability to disagree to disagree and just move on with our lives. I think we, we hold grudges that don't matter for far too long and get caught up with them if we're not careful. Yeah, but it's it's also holding grudges is one thing. I mean, that's something you need to kind of evolve out of your own ego and, and stuff. And and some people it's just never gonna happen. I'm I'm I mean, me and Metz, Max have discussed this before. Like I'm a believer in the fact that humans have evolved to require conflict. We've just been in conflict forever and we're not at a point yet where we're our lives have been our lives are comfortable and easy at the moment and if you don't believe so i think you probably need a a good hard look at the western world but we haven't been in this state for long enough to evolve out of that need for conflict and people who are stressing himself deliberately by training hard every day or fasting or cold bars or so whatever it is some somewhere in your life you've got deliberate and controlled stress that you're getting that kind of internal conflict out that kind of settles it a bit and then the people that don't are sitting at home going i've got this need to just pick a fight with someone for some reason i'm not going to go out and start swinging i'm going straight to facebook and hitting the keyboard and then i think most of them are doing it subconsciously but i mean that's i, I think not trying to be all righteous but from a, as a mental health organization we've got someone like jess almost qualified as a psych understands what's going through people's heads still gets brought down like spends a weekend watching these old dudes and they're all in their 60s 70s trolling brings her down and i i just look at it and go i would love to turn jump on the and go fuck off and, and delete him but at the same time we've got to look at it and go 
I have to put myself in that person's shoes for a minute before we just tell them to fuck off. And chances are that's a pretty miserable person on the other end of that keyboard. They're not happy in life and they're obviously just venting at the wrong people. Yeah, and that's like when I was saying like my decision tree of listening to their what their comments, points are, you find out whether they actually are reaching out and they just don't know how to articulate their in pain and, and you dig into it. And if they're happy to engage, you can pull it out of them usually. But if they just have an event, you just tell them, you just, mm. I tell them just to rack off because it's just they don't want to have their mind changed. They are just acting out because they feel insecure or they're struggling or whatever. But I have numerous people that come in, float into my DMs, asking me about stuff all the time. And for no charge, no nothing, I'll talk to them and actually like see if I can help or give, show them resources or point them to someone who can. Because that's what you do. Um, so once you get to that point where you realise, is this person just bad at articulating that they're in trouble or they're struggling because they're, they're, they're obviously in that headspace? Can I help? Yes, no. If no, try and point them somewhere else. But if they're just trying to pick a fight, just tell them to piss off. And that's probably why I've probably never become a psych or go down that medical path because... I think I've got empathy for the amount of people, the amount people struggle because I've been through some pretty significant stuff over the last decade or so, including military service and the stuff that comes with that. Um, but I also like, I also want to be able to have those frank conversations with people. Some of my best conversations with my clients have been ones where I've gone, you need to stop complaining and just get back to work to the plan we set. Um, and, and by like doing that, it sometimes shocks people back into action and gets moving, but also it's just such a complex thing, the brain, um, and social media doesn't do it any good, I guess, but I think it's just, it's trying to be as polite as you can, but then some people just don't want to be helped. Like those 60 year olds that try and tear Jess down, like they don't want to be helped. They're past that point. They just want to have a rant. Um, they're the guys that you probably need to tell the fuck off. You probably can't because you're a mental health charity. I'm lucky I'm just a small business that can do what I want. But obviously if I end up turning into a serious business, I'm going to have to curb this attitude, aren't I, and learn how to master it or probably just take myself off customer-facing roles. Um, but it's um, it's just it's just that point. It's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I guess. Like if people are feeling unsafe whether it's physiological physiologically psychologically whatever they'll act out in what they've been taught to act out in through their upbringing or their transformational years as an adult so if they've been taught to be aggressive they'll be aggressive but if they've taught they've been taught to be passive aggressive they'll get on social media because it's easy to do those types of things um and they just they're just reverting to first line behavior i know exactly what they're doing um but you you do if you're struggling as a business owner or someone else as well, you have the right to tell someone to piss off. If they're not being constructive and actually helping you or you're letting you help them, you can. Um, a bad review, uh, particularly the way you can actually actively be transparent on people's reviews and comments, like uh, I wouldn't ever be afraid of a negative review if you actually feel like the person's trying to legitimately make you feel shit or tear you down, that's for sure. Mm. Yeah, I don't think the, the Google review system gets much attention anymore, unfortunately, because everyone just knows that is that is the breeding ground for trolls. Because what was so where you, you talk about um, 
and I want to get into this experience that you've gained from your own lived experience and, and now leading into your business. Talk about a making point um, and will this be an experience or an excuse? Can you take us through that and and some of the, the, the these you've come from a place of lived experience uh, and what's your purpose and mission now, mate? Yes. Um, so the making making point. There's been a couple, to be honest. Um, anyone that goes through significant trauma or events, um, you get faced with a with a fork in the road. Whether where how I describe it, like I sort of led on to earlier, you've got a decision where you can make it an excuse where it guides your limiting beliefs and pushes you down that path of being labelled as a certain type of person for the rest of your life, or you've got a position where you can make it an experience and do the things like what you guys are doing and what I'm doing and actually trying to help better the world. Or just even worrying about your own wheelhouse, like I've said it earlier, worrying about that and just being a better person yourself and not letting these time and events that are now in the past control everything to do with your future um and the first probably real big real big point was when i was um severely burnt out running my gym being a sole business operator uh ran out of steam had to let two of my staff go one wasn't performing one i just he wasn't the right fit for the business unfortunately and then i'd burnt myself out and i had this chance to close my gym um, and in that time where I was burnt out, uh, so two deployments of Afghanistan, lost three of the boys over there that I was good friends with. But then when I got out of the military, I lost my dad in 2014. The year after, I lost my daughter at birth. Uh, that same week, uh, I lost a good mate who got stabbed to death by a paranoid schizophrenic the morning after I lost my daughter. And anyone who's lost a child at birth, it was like a 56-hour labour and she passed away just after she was born. It was fucking traumatic. Uh, and then later in that week, I lost my pop to cancer. Uh, so all of that happened within 12 months, essentially. So my dad and then 12 months later, those three. And then after that, a year later or 13 months later, I had my son who was healthy and, and that sort of stuff. Actually, no, he had some complications just after birth as well. But I hit this point. Um, where I just had to stop and just shut everything up. I muked my social media accounts. I disappeared and I just had to sort of go on my different career paths where I sort of meandered through recruitment and then tech and I pulled myself out of it slowly there. But stopping and getting to the point where I then started to choose to rebuild my life was was a turning point. And then the following one came uh not too long after all of that, to be honest, about 2017, my marriage fell apart. Um, and this isn't disparaging my ex-wife at all. After all those traumatic events, you can probably see why communication was lost and and we sort of drifted apart. And um, she left me via a text message three days before my birthday uh, and took took my son and, and, and went and moved in with her parents, which she had every right to. I'm not, I'm not bashing her at all. We both needed to... Uh, recover and heal from what we went through um, and she actually caused the biggest growth trajectory of my life so um, I look at it as a very positive thing nowadays but I was laying there like in bed like not sleeping not like functioning essentially um, and I just just like I think it was just after probably uh, one of the only angry phone calls I've ever made to a 
after it and I um I sort of just went, all right, that's it. Now it's time to get on with life. And then I subsequently spent a couple of years just putting the building blocks of my life back together and hence why I stumbled into the the program I built and everything like that, just searching for these answers myself and talking to people on the same journey and things like that. But those, those were like essentially making points where I was faced with a decision where I could be just this crippled, grumpy, well, I'm still pretty grumpy, I guess. I've said a lot of fucks in this podcast episode, I guess. But I just, I had those points. I had the choice. Um, and I, I made my choice and went the hard route, put myself into some deep, dark holes and, and dealt with a few of the demons that I was I was faced with. And fortunately enough, after some perseverance and having a good support network, I came out the other side. Uh, that sounds like a, a rough four years of it, mate. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, people go through worse though, don't they? Um, I'm very quick to remind myself really? that like everyone's got their own story. And the big thing I tell people, the physiological and psychological effects of stress and trauma, regardless if you got blown up and shot at or whatever, are the same. They manifest in the same way. So we're all normal. So it sort of normalises the discussion a little bit and makes it okay. So people, when I tell them my story, some people are like, whoa, and really taken aback. But I normalise it by saying the way you feel when you're burnt out and tired is exactly how I felt. Um, and it sort of levels the playing field a little bit. But it just gets to a point we all get faced with them. Some days you just got to suck it up and get through and then you hit the fork in the road and whichever you choose is up to you, essentially. How do you um? How, do you get along with your missus now, or your ex missus? I've, I've got a good relationship with Mike's wife. Yeah, um, we talk pretty amicably. We've got shared custody of my son. Um, my son has a great relationship with both of us, um, and I've got a great partner as well, who's awesome. She's integrated perfectly with our little family on my side of the thing. So, um, and that took a lot of work. Like you see a lot of military or veteran separations; they get pretty messy or can do, um, but. I was going through some, I actually went and saw a psychologist after my ex-wife left because um, I was rock bottom and I thought, well, let's give this a red hot crack. And the most profound lesson I got taught by her was she said to me one day because I was really struggling with letting some of this go and she said, Brett, what you've been through makes sense but not everything has to be a battle. And it kind of just smacked me in the face. I was taking this like hard attitude towards everything where I had to just kick doors in and kick ass and take names, I guess. Like I was just going through that military sort of mindset and it really taught taught me to stop. And then I dug into a whole heap of things like stoic philosophy and things like that, which really helped um, that pivoted my attitudes and my my approaches to things. And I'm not perfect. I get angry and there's probably people that listen to this podcast that know me and probably want to say you're full of shit. Um, but uh, I've I probably made a choice in those those transformational points to be happy to be wrong when I and make mistakes and then just never stop um, and never stop improving. So I think that's probably my only I probably the only reason why I've sort of kept on the trajectory I have to be honest. Yeah, no, I mean that that story resonates, mate. I um. I haven't reached that point with my ex yet. We we still we go off on off on being really good mates, and then 
hating each other again. And I, I, I every, what, what you were just saying, the, the big takeaway for me is the only way to solve that stuff is to to book inwards and solve your own shit. Because um, you're sitting at the table with an ex missus. So I've got, got two kids as well, and sitting down with her and trying to solve everything by telling her where she went wrong is not going to fix anything. The only way to move forward is to look inside yourself and go, where are my shortfalls and what what can I fix in my life? And then, I mean, I, I get that all the time too. Like I, I think everyone should be evolving and changing every year of their life. Um, and I know there's a lot of, when I talk about some of this stuff and, and say how you need to, to reflect on X, Y, Z and people are like, you are full of shit. I'm like, what, what stage of my life are you judging me on? Because if you're looking at me, the 24-year-old when I was in the army, 100% arrogant as fuck. Yeah. And I'm not saying I've completely solved that problem, but I'm aware of it and, and there's there's work in progress. But, yeah, mate, um, obviously your, your story's a solid one and it's obviously would have been hard to, to get through, but it sounds like you did push through with and, and turn it into a positive or at least learn and grow from it by introspection. Yeah, you, we can only control what's inside ourselves and our own actions, I guess. But I think probably one of the things that really put it in perspective for myself to drive to be sort of uh, a more consistent individual to growth was like losing a daughter and then having this son that I hold most dearly, right? Like parenting is by far the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, being present, not choosing not to get the shits at things when you're used to just getting things done yourself and efficiently, helping a young person grow. Like I had that perspective and sort of said, I'm sort of facing this tipping point now where I could have a really shitty relationship with my son uh, or I could just worry about what I'm doing and lead by example and then have this relationship with my son, which I had a great relationship with my dad. And I just made that choice to make it about him as opposed to me, which I've got a pretty big ego, man. I've done a lot of cool things in my life and I'm proud of a lot of those things too. But I've also had a lot of fuck-ups and errors and, and had a lot of things go wrong too, which has probably grounded me to a point where I, I was able to gain that perspective, which I'm very thankful for. So, I mean, this is going to take us into um, where you're at now and and what you've got coming up. I mean, I know you spoke about you rewriting your book and your business uh, and your life values, the, the three Bs, mate. Yeah, I've had these. I've published them in my original book. Um, I really struggled finding purpose and, and alignment when I left the military, right? Like I jumped into fitness and I... I'm lucky I just had a stupid work ethic that I developed from two deployments to get me through. And everyone's got the requisite aptitude to be good at business. It's just a hard slog because you get all the doubters, all the haters, and, like, usually you either run out of cash flow or you burn yourself out, uh, which I did my first first evolution, I guess. Um, but my the three Bs that I run with, I think value-based decision-making um, is really important for people. A, it guides the ship. It's the rudder to where you point your efforts and time. But my three Bs are, are be grateful because life can get pretty shit, so you better be grateful with what you have. Um, and being grateful for what you have now starts to remove some of that uh, wanting in that I need more type attitude. And then the second one's uh, be useful because let's be honest, most people aren't. A lot of people are just existing. And that's not a slight of people. You might be fighting, if anyone's listening to this and you're finding yourself in a place where you simply are just existing, there is a whole nother world when you find the purpose that you want to chase that is going to light up your life. 
whatever it is, it even just can be being a good parent, being a good partner, whatever it is, it can be small. But if you don't have that purpose, go and bloody look for it and be useful and be in service of others. If you've got your mind and your life in, in enough order that you can be of service to others, go and be useful. Go and do something of use to whether it's your immediate circle or the benefit of a population. You will be surprised how it changes your life. And then the final one, which is probably the key case in point that gets me through most things because I can slap myself up the side of the head when I have these days, is be consistent. Um, if we look at like sort of the way we're marketed to on social media and, and the day, it's a very much instant gratification world we live in. Um, and being consistent is what sets everyone who is, is successful out from anyone who isn't in their pursuits. Um, and then if you get your goal right and your purpose and you align it with a strong value set, I think you're going to be pretty right. You're going to run into speed bumps and hurdles, particularly the bigger you, bigger and more audacious your goal is, the harder it's going to be to get there and the more growth it's going to demand from you. But you've got the North Star and you'll be able to persevere through those tougher times. Sound advice, mate. As long as people just need to, like you were saying, they've got to be aware that it's, it's not going to be easy and they've just got to chip away at it over time. There is no such thing as an overnight success. For anyone out there listening, no. I mean, there's a plenty of memes kicking around, and overnight success is ten years in the making. Well, it's and it's what we get marketed to. There's those ultra successful people, but they're they're the ones that have slugged it out. And that's like I, I say, and I've probably said it on a couple of occasions now. Where we go wrong as a cohort of ex-military types, particularly in fitness, is we preach discipline. Right? Discipline is only formed over years of consistency. I say to people, you need to take action. Then you need to gain some momentum. That will then form into consistency, which after time will form into discipline. So we've got to stop telling people you need to be more disciplined. We've got to start telling people to just take that small jump, just aim for consistency over the long term. But before you step on it, make sure it's the right thing you want to do. Don't base it on someone marketing to you, getting you all excited, and then all of a sudden you wonder why two weeks after you burn out and you're not interested in it anymore. That's just, it's not planning or choosing values in alignment with your goals or your, oh, sorry, your values. Um, I think that's where we go wrong as a cohort because we got discipline flogged into us at Kapuka, at bloody IETs, through special operations, through your operation, like any operations you did, like we got beat into us. And when we weren't disciplined, people, people died. People got seriously hurt. So we had that reinforced time and time again. But I guess we know how many of the guys that we sort of stay in contact with have lost all of their fitness that like aren't really disciplined anymore too. It's a lifelong process. It's hard to master. Yeah, you see um, some of the – we did a couple of – when I was on a couple of promotion courses and there was this – I don't know, the the wingy came in to have a bit of a a spiel on discipline and what discipline meant – um, and he, you know, the example he used was shaving every day and this sass cat got up, he was on course and he's like, I completely disagree shaving every day. He goes, how long does it take you to shave every day? And this warrant officer was like about two minutes. And he's like, so that's discipline, is it? He goes, well, I think discipline is, uh, an unshaved guy that puts hours and hours and hours of work into running his gun and being perfecting this, you know, and he said, that's discipline is this this razor focus constantly, you know, and this dude just sat there was like, they couldn't get the rhetoric out of his head, mate. He's like, no, nah, but you have to shave. That's discipline. Like, 
no, that's your monkeys in a cage version of of what discipline <laughs> is, mate. <laughs> that, that was a, that was always the reaction from every crusty woe when you you'd pop over from Camp <laughs> Russell with long hair, half a beard. Like you'd roll over and they'd just be like, you need a shave. You're like, I'm over there. They're like, ah, damn it. And they just walk <laughs> off. Like it's just it's just a control metric, right? Like if you're talking about controlling the masses, yeah, you look for little things like that and how to influence people on a micro level like that. Like they're the only ways you can do it. But like having having the operators on junior leaders course and that, I got, I got to do my course with um, Mark Donaldson. He was in my section as well, actually. Um, and he was just a wealth of knowledge. But... You can see he went through, if you've read his book, he went through some really significant events as a child and which galvanised him for his life. So he had those turning points too. But he was a really cool dude. I was in my section. I also got student of merit. I beat him just if he ever listens to this. Um, probably the only thing I'd ever be better than him at. Mate, I'll clip um, that out and send it to him. See how we yeah, just, just general soldiering. Yeah, cool. He's just one of me, so no big deal. No, but he was such an inspirational dude to be around. Like, to be honest, like those guys and the, and the, the way they're trained and bred and all that, I'm lucky to, I grew up with a few guys that went over to Perth and that sort of stuff. Like, those guys were really, really influential on the way I elevated my level of discipline once I actually learned what real discipline was, that was actually one of the very similar turning points when I started to work with them. Um, it was an eye-opener for sure. It was a very humbling experience. But those sort of guys, they they know what discipline is. Um, but quite often, like, look what they go through to become disciplined too. Uh, it's it's proof, proof of what I just said. It takes years and certain events to make you that way. Mate, um, so that people listening, where can they find, what have you got going on over the next six months? Where can they find your programs? Where can they follow you and where can they get more? I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to this podcast um, as well. Well, the best way, best place to grab me is on my website, minimalismfitness.com. It's got all the links uh, to my socials, Instagram, Facebook. All my content is free on YouTube. Always will be. And I know we're talking about getting some of my programs into the Swiss ADAP, which I'm going to do for, sh- for sure. More than happy to get those in there for you. Um, so particularly what I specialise in, so you can actually know if you're going to waste your time or not. Obviously, habit shaping and stuff, I, I have like my own process with that. But, um, but more so mobility, movement and getting people back to activity. So if you've got busted injuries from service or just getting a bit older, um, that's sort of my wheelhouse. So I'll set up a, um, a page for you guys. It'll just be minimalismfitness.com forward slash Swiss 8. I'll send you the link for the show notes. Um, you'll be able to get access to all of my content because it is 100% free. Um, and then we'll look to put something in the, in the Swiss 8 app in the coming months so you guys can really get stuck into it. Uh, but then following that, next year I'm off to build, build something through a startup incubator. Who knows what it is and how it's going to turn out, but hopefully we can help and scale people to a massive effect. Um, I'd like to help a million people within the next five years with all of this stuff. So I'm on the journey. We'll see how we go. Mate, that um, that was actually one of the things I was going to bring up, but we might, uh, we might wait um, six, 12 months, get you back on and, and talk about what it's like going through that startup uh, incubator because I think that's a, that's a whole new story. And we, we've talked about life in the military and, and growth after, but it'd be good to talk about how you completely reshaped into a into a 
soon to be highly successful tech startup founder. Yeah, you could talk to me in 12 months and I'll be homeless. Um, so <laughs> that'll be a good bloody yeah, story yeah, too, yeah. right? We'll provide, the, we'll provide the microphone, mate. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully just hook us up with a coffee and a feed, then boys. Um, but like that, and but I'm willing to put it all on the line. So we'll see within the, the next six months, first six months of next year, whether this thing will take off. First three will give me an idea if I'm on the right track, and then have something hopefully in existence. But it is proof. Like I'm no one, no one special. I was a middle of the road white kid from Brisbane, man. Like I even like I, I passed all my aptitude and assessments to become an Air Force pilot. And because I was a lazy prick at school because I didn't understand the value of work ethic as a young person, academically, I mean, um, I got told I had to go to uni for a year and then I'd get accepted back into the program and then I chose to go down the dog side because I learned I had dogs in the army. But the face on the Air Force recruiter was the funniest thing I've ever seen in all my life. I've literally passed through all the gates. I had to just go to uni for a year and he's looking at me going, are you sure you want to do this? So... You want to be a what? No, they got dogs, yeah. mate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's just proof. Like, if there's anyone listening to this thinking about starting those things, obviously follow you guys. You guys are doing great things. Um, I'm just an average middle of the road kid from Brisbane that just went through a couple of tricky patches in my twenties and managed to get through okay. Like, it's it's not impossible. Tech isn't confusing. Look at the boys at like companies like with you with me now and stuff like that. A lot of veterans doing great things in, in a lot of spaces. Um, the world's your oysters, boys and girls. Um, don't let it, don't let some self-limiting beliefs, some crusty woe in the military gave you, hold you back. Go for it. Mate, before it should be the opposite. I mean, me and Max are the same. I was an infantry section commander. Max was an infantry sergeant. Um, now explaining tech to current serving warrant officers, RSMs, whatever, it's it's, mate. We're far more advanced, and that's not saying that's a big thing on our end. It's saying that anyone can get out, reskill, retrain, and be. You, you can forget that imposter syndrome stuff. You are bringing back to the table with politicians, generals, whatever. You're bringing back new knowledge that they know nothing about, and it's all it's doable. Yeah, yeah. It's it's our self limiting beliefs. Or fear of failure, or fear fear of being found out as an imposter. That's usually all it drills down to. But if you've got the goal and and you and you've got the desire, there's a lot of steps in between finding whether your idea is valid and things like that by testing and all that sort of cool stuff. But it doesn't stop you. You can start a business. I started this business that I'm running right now from fifteen hundred dollars my tax return, half of my tax return last year, and it's helped over a thousand people so far. Um, so you don't need a lot of money. You just need a bit of, bit of guts and a, a brain in your head and a, a half decent idea, which you can bounce off boys like yourselves, myself, like, and then just go for it and see where you land up. Love it, mate. Um, thanks for coming on the show. We're gonna get this edited out, and it'll be airing on Monday, mate. Um, I really appreciate you coming in, and 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 guys can look at your lived experience and what you went through and follow your journey. Um, and yeah, mate, really appreciate you taking the time and coming on. No, no problems at all, fellas. I hope it helps someone, um, but I appreciate the time. That's for sure. Mate, we'll chat to you later. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Thanks fellas. Mate.